Welcome back to Finance for Physicians. I am the producer of the show, Pablo, and we're back with another installment of golden nuggets of specific topics that affect physicians. And this one is about that moment where you take control of your schedule, take control of your finances, stop being reliant to the system that is clearly broken. And we've taken three excerpts from past interviews that we think will be of great value. One with Dr. Mamta Kumar, one with Dr. Param Balandandapani, and one with Dr. Rani Shalev that explain the arc in a compressed way of when they went from realizing, huh, this isn't really working for me, to then getting to the point where they are fully in control of their finances, their schedule, of their life, right? They are using money as a tool, not making money the goal. And you're going to find three commonalities in these stories, which I think is what's so important about these episodes. The first commonality is you're going to hear that they each realized it right around the time of having children, right? Not necessarily the first child, maybe the second child or the third child, but they all kind of had this origin of like, oh man, my priorities have shifted and this means I need to start seeking things. And what I want you to take away from this is it might not be kids, but just understand that when your priorities shift, it's okay to start looking for things differently. Second is they each surrounded themselves with a third party that helped them diagnose their situation. Some are mentors, some are their network, others specifically hired coaches, hired financial advisors, hired real estate coaches, things of the sort, right? But the value of the third party diagnosis is going to be very consistent in this. And third is that none of them got there overnight. They each took incremental steps and at some point realized this is all working for me. It's all snowballed. So what I want you to take from those last two things is one, if you don't have somebody in your life, you don't have people in your life that can be that third party diagnosis for you. Hopefully this show, hopefully Daniel's team can serve as that for you, but if not, go out and find that. And then third is the thing that you need to do is take action, right? Like none of these doctors got there overnight. They started kind of iterating, right? Whether it's like buying a passive income rental property and starting that way, whether it's planning out how to go off on, on their own to see if that could fix or maybe getting another job, but it's all iterative. So you'll hear that in all three of these stories of doctors that have found their way to controlling their life, to having control of their schedule and not being run by their finances. Enjoy. Welcome to Finance for Physicians, a show where we empower physicians like you to practice medicine the way you always dreamed you would. This podcast features doctors, physicians, and experts that share one main thing in common. We believe having control of our finances leads to having control of our lives. In a world where doctors' lives are often dictated by our needs to maximize income, pay back massive student loans, and buy homes, many of us give up reaching those goals. But it doesn't have to be this way. 
you are ready to learn how financial wellness creates happier doctors and patients, then I'm your guy. I'm your host and financial expert, Daniel Wren. Let's get started. Mamta, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Daniel, for having me. I am excited about our conversation. You've had a kind of an interesting transition. You started in traditional healthcare, working as a physician and had some burnout and made a, a pretty big shift into starting your own integrative medicine practice. And, and now you've been focusing more on land investing and even teaching other physicians how to do that. There's so much time dedicated to the training of becoming a physician. And after spending so much time and effort in training to become a physician, it had to have been some pretty big motivation to make a shift out of that into something, especially like completely different. Like I can get like the starting your own practice thing. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. But like investing in land, like what's the motivation behind like the shift to going a different direction like that? And then is there any like guilt around that? Does it feel you're kind of like leaving something behind? Yeah, that's a great question. And in fact, you have summarized it so well, Daniel. This journey has been long. Getting into medicine, first of all, is not easy. And after all that struggle, getting into the medicine, finishing the training. And I finished my residency in 2012, like exactly 11 years ago. And I never thought I would be ever pivoting out because I thought I always loved medicine. I always wanted to continue to practice medicine. Just being a dentist physician, have a boring job. And just live in a town where I initially moved to and then just live in a beautiful house. And then that's how life would be. But as life changes, right? At that time, I had just one little girl who had, I did have some complexities around that, but she was okay. But the second child, which I had within two years of my attending job, was a complex pregnancy and a complex, medically complex child. So that's what started that struggle, feeling that I wanted to stay in medicine, but I didn't have that much time. The time was something which was so scarce, and I found myself just trying to kind of juggle and see, was med medicine still a priority for me, or is it these kids in the family? And with time, that it was not like in a day, I realized that, oh no, I do want to kind of cut down my work in clinical medicine and do other things. But within six to seven years after switching back and forth, different jobs, different positions, different hours of work, just to see if I was able to have more personal time. Eventually in 2018, I switched to part-time hospitalist job. And then I had some more health issues. And then I started degraded medicine training. That was initially not for, uh, it was not a career move. It was for my own health issues. And I was like, you know what? This is great. I feel like this has changed my life. And this is very different from traditional medicine. So how about let me start practicing that? Because I was still not contemplating going totally away from medicine. So that's when I started this online telemedicine practice and pandemic. But again, I never had a business background. So I didn't know how to kind of market, get clients and this and that. But also as a side gig, I had started in land investing. That was in 2018 as well. So that whatever changes I was making in my job position, I was just building out another side gig, which would have a solid income for me and provide some financial freedom for me and our family so that I could, I didn't need to trade my time with work as an employee. So that's when I realized that even though now, the tra traditional medicine was gone. And now the two things which were left was this integrative medicine and the land investing. And I was trying to work on both. 
And I realized that with land investing, I was able to get results faster. And I started to develop team around it. That business just continued to grow. And integrative medicine, not necessarily, you know, it's just different business, right? So it was, I started to just face those struggles of business owner, like how to run this business. And it kept on learning the skills on the real estate side, which I kept on implementing. And it seemed like at one point I had to choose. And this was basically actually in February, 2023 this year. I was like, you know what? I cannot just keep on doing these two things. Nothing is making sense. And a lot of physicians were interested in learning land investing. At that time, I made this hard decision that I'm not going to pursue integrative medicine at this point. At one point, that's still a possibility. But right now, I just want to focus on the real estate because this is not just a freedom for me for right now. It's for my own future, my kids, for the next generation, freedom as well. It was a little bit of hard decision to make, but I really think for with all my past years, of slowly just going into that road less traveled, I think I was almost getting to the point where I just, I was conscious and I just made a decision that, okay, I don't have to keep on doing the things which is just expected out of me just because I'm a physician. Was there any guilt around that? Leaving medicine? There was a lot of guilt around that. Like throughout the pandemic, when I quit clinical medicine, the traditional and then integrative, I believe the integrative practice also came around with that guilt. I really think at my core, I didn't want to do it. And that's why I would never market it. And I would mm -hmm. keep on doing the real estate gig and it started to give me results and I'll do more and more of that. I had multiple life coaches. I have had worked with two multiple, yeah, two life coaches. And I think the main issue was this. I don't know why I love medicine. I want to continue to do medicine. But when it comes to action taking, my whole day goes in the real estate, not in medicine. And that's when they introduced this idea. What if you just don't expect anything out of it? If you're doing something each day, just keep on taking it that way. And there were a few instances when a lot of my friends who had met in the virtual world after the pandemic, we started to meet face-to-face -face, and they started to say or notice that it seems like you get very excited when you talk about land investing, but I don't notice that excitement in the integrative space which was something which was eye-opening for me, which made me go back and rethink, why is that? Or is that even true? And then I realized that, yeah, I mean, I, I do really feel a lot more passionate about plan investing now, that integrative medicine, and that was eye-opener for me. Yeah, we see that a lot in our the families that we work with. So I can't remember how much we talked about it, but my day job, we work with families, physician families in their, with their finances, and you know how finances like get into everything. But like, you can see it's hard sometimes to identify these things yourself really hard. And so as like the third party that kind of like knows all the stuff, we really oftentimes will see these things. We're like, man, you just don't seem very excited about this thing. Or like you get really excited about when you talk about this kind of thing. That's always such a great mm -hmm. indicator of which direction you should go. It's also yeah. like an indicator of burnout. And like if you're just dreading something, it's scary how many families we work with that are just like dreading their work and that is like that's no good like I don't want my physician to dread their work like that's scary and yeah. on multiple levels but then when you're excited that's like where you get the passion and you can really knock it out of the park but like you have to I don't know what it is I guess you have to be willing to because it's really like I said hard it sounds like with you you didn't quite self-diagnose that exactly no I didn't 
But one other thing, you're right, like, you know, on the same pod, when I decided like in February, no, January, I was like, you know what, let me look at some PRN job opportunities. And I was working as a hospitalist before. That meant my shifts were going to be 12-hour shifts. And then I started to interview at some places. And then I started to imagine how it would feel to wake up at five o'clock, get ready and leave at six o'clock, and then be at work all day and come back at around 7.30. Gosh, I couldn't just digest that. I was like, I don't want to be in that situation. I just don't want that. Like, I really don't like that. So coming from both places, when other people started telling me, hey, you seem to get too excited when you talk about land investing. <laughs> and I realized that I'm not too excited about these PRN opportunities at all. And mm -hmm. that's when it was just kind of so clear. I was like, you know, even though I have worked so hard for medicine, but it's just so clear as day and night that I do not, even though I love that clinical part of the patient and doctor relationship, but again, you know, it's just no way possible other than me practicing on my own terms, which I don't have time for right now. Yeah. When you have, the other thing is when your time, you, you mentioned earlier, like yeah. your time was so scarce, it's almost compounds it. I think when the time is limited to be able to self-diagnose things on top of the fact that you don't even have any time to like look yeah. for opportunities or whatever. Oh, yes. It, it makes you almost more stuck when you're, mm -hmm. so that's the challenge is like you get in these hospital, you were in hosp hospitals, right? That was my last job. Yeah. So that's like all in and then you got nothing, nothing left in the tank when you get home. So it's like, how do you sh make a big shift mm -hmm. if it's burning you out? With you, when you got no, when you have no gas mm -hmm. left in the tank, did you you had some outside things that prompted you to kind of make that shift, or or you were able to kind of take some part time gigs and that kind of thing? Is that it was your shift a little bit slower? It was very slow, as slow as I could have, mm -hmm. because I definitely wanted to give myself enough time to think. So between jobs, I had taken some time off. I was a nighttime nocturnist before, then hospitalist, even though it, I was part time. So I have to, I know for physicians, when anybody's working full-time all the time, they don't have time at all. Mm. But since I had taken breaks in between jobs, I was taking part-time jobs. So I had like one week of like a lot of work, 80 plus hours of work, but three weeks were off. I did have a little bit of time, way more than compared to any, anyone else would have to kind of ponder and go through that and create a plan, which worked for me and my needs and our family. It was very personalized thing. I don't think anybody talks about, like, it's, it's very hard to kind of have these kind of conversations of pivoting, especially in the physician world, because, you know, it's just so hard to get into. And even that thought, nobody entertains to leave or have life on your terms. Like nobody entertains that thought for long enough. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you, you don't have anybody to talk to. Yeah. And it's difficult to figure out yourself when yeah. you're just talking to yourself or Googling online or whatever. <laughs> So who did you talk to about it? Well, who were some of the people that you were able to talk to? Because I mean, like I can imagine, you know, your spouse or close friends, but like the challenge there is like, maybe they don't have the expertise exactly. Or like your certain relationships are kind of like your yes people, like they just try to build you up. So but it was very slow transition. And I was just being open to the idea that I could be somebody who is not practicing traditional medicine in the virtual world, just being a inter physician entrepreneur. And I really think not necessarily talking to somebody, but seeing different role models during this pandemic when we were not able to meet in person, but there were multiple virtual groups out there where I could see and, and connect virtually with a lot of other physician entrepreneurs mm -hmm. who were not necessarily leaving the medicine per se, 
right away, but we're starting the side gigs. We're being more successful. We're able to cut down their hours at their clinical role. I really think that was something which made it possible for me to even think that that's a possibility for me. And after seeing that, I was just kind of open to that idea. It took a long time to kind of think that, oh, okay, it's good for them. Like they were able to do it. Like it's not going to be possible for me. But after just seeing different examples again and again in different arena, even though nobody was in land investing, but other kind of investment, or even non-investing, other things. So I was like, you know what? If they can do it, then all I have to do is just persist and continue to practice what I know. Time is what is going to compound things. And that's what was kind of motivational for me to kind of so that I could just pursue this. Yeah, it was like a mindset. mindset yes, it was way shift. more than a yeah, mindset. It was not like a day decision where I decided, oh, I'm going to be an investor. No. <laughs> Tomorrow. It was, it was a very slow transition, which I right. could take. It was not an overnight. I wish it was overnight. Then right. it would have saved me that many years of pain and agony and then not knowing what should I do? Should I even leave medicine? But why? these kind of things. But I'm glad that I went through that process. And now I feel very comfortable and at ease of whatever choices I've made in my life. Param, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. I'm so excited to be on here, Daniel. Yeah. So you're a practicing radiologist. You've been doing that, what, is it 20 years now? It's uh, 13 years since I've been out of training. And I worked full-time for the first 10 years. And then the last three years, I've been a day a week or less in medicine at this point. Gotcha. So yeah, still practicing one day a week as a radiologist. And your bigger professional endeavors here lately, you're getting into real estate. And I know you've built your own real estate portfolio, but have also started helping others with real estate and have built several businesses to kind of support all this. And that's pretty cool to see all that. And I imagine that there's a lot of balancing going on. I'm thinking like two kiddos, businesses, practice of medicine, life, is a lot to kind of balance and but from my view it looks like you're doing a great job with all that stuff and i'm kind of excited to dig into how you've gotten to where you are today and how you've been able to i know there's never this perfect balance right or maybe you're this one person that i found yeah, that has totally. the perfect balance but i imagined <laughs> the last person no you're absolutely right daniel so it wasn't the plan right this wasn't the intended direction i when i got out of training i got these amazing jobs as a radiologist you know i'm a high, high income earner it was the definition of success that i'd had for years where you know i had the million dollar house i had the 12 weeks vacation negotiation negotiated and everything was going good, you know, traditional, what you, how you anticipate things to be. And I realized along the way, before you have kids, it's, it's very different, but as, you know, you have the first child and it's still manageable. And then you have the second child and you realize you definitely need way more time if you really you want to be intentional about being present for them. And that's when I think I started to realize that I had a lack of autonomy didn't have absolute control over my time right so I definitely wanted to spend more time with the kids but oftentimes they were spending the day with the nanny or in daycare and so it, it was something I was getting used to and I always say status quo is okay if it's not super painful so it wasn't super painful it wasn't to the point where a change need to, needed to be made and so I was just cruising along till there was a rough transition at work where that's when I realized that things couldn't continue the way they were and that's when I had to pivot and pivoting for me was about accelerating my real estate journey that's when I really understood the impact that that would have. And then when I got to financial freedom, that's when I was able to cut back. So that's a little bit about of the backstory in terms of how it worked out for me. 
what were some of the reasons, like, if we could go all the way back to, I don't know, like, right before medical school, I, that's, I guess that's kind of when you make that decision to go into the career, or maybe, maybe it was sooner for you. But like, what were your main reasons? Maybe two part question, like, at what age did you decide you were going to go into medicine? And then at that point in time, like, what were the reasons you decided to do that? Well, so funnily, you know, I'm Indian and my parents knew when I was born that they wanted me to become a physician. So growing up, I just knew that I really early, like at three, I knew I was going to become a physician. So it's always been a part of my identity. And looking back, I mean, you know, especially since I've cut back on medicine, a big part of my transition has been really being introspecting. There's nothing else I would rather have done, right? So as, as a career, as something that I spent so many years training to be, I just don't see myself doing anything other than medicine. It's just that the medicine was very different from the job that I had was more limiting. Medicine is very fulfilling. I still feel that way about it. I think the the aspects of the job was, those were the things that I wanted to see the change in. But medicine per se, radiology, the diagnostic aspect, being procedural, I'm a breast imager, all of that was very, very fulfilling and satisfying. Uh, But the, the job was very different from how I wanted to practice medicine. Yeah, I have heard that like a zillion times, unfortunately, this whole idea that most physicians I interact with seem to have got into medicine for the right reasons and have this vision of how they would ideally want to take care of patients and do healthcare. But there's this that vision. And then you look at the actual reality of how they're doing it. And it's completely different. And that seems to have I mean, it seems to be a big part of all this stress that exists with the profession, because when you know the right way to do something, and you're kind of like forced to do it a different way, that's like incredibly frustrating for some people, some people have different tolerances for that. For me personally, like I have very, very low tolerance for that. I'm like, I got to get out immediately. Because it's it's extremely frustrating. But has that been your experience? Is that like, yeah, you're absolutely right, Daniel. So there are a few components to it, right? Burnout is definitely a huge component. And burnout can be because the workload, what you're expected to your expectations at work, that there's a mismatch over there, right? That's not what you want to do. That's not what you have capacity to do. And those expectations aren't resetting. Burnout could be because, and I've seen this with physician friends who are sometimes commuting four hours a day to get to a job that they like, but then it's taking away so much from quality of work. I remember during the pandemic, you know, right after that rough career transition, you know, where it was a six month period, I didn't have autonomy. I realized that if I didn't get back into another job, you know, I wasn't financially secure at that point. So you have that, all of that transition, but right after that, when I got settled in and I had another job lined up and I was settling in there, the pandemic happened. And a lot of physicians experienced burnout during the pandemic because suddenly, you know, workload shifted the, the way we were practicing medicine had to shift and pivot and, and all physicians listening to this understand it was a time of huge transition i went through that transition and fortunately enough as a radiologist and i think many of us were able to work part-time from home but being at home with the kids being at home and then Hmm. suddenly you know shifting in terms of what your workload used to be and what you're expected to read and um, a shift in that um, workload also all of those things actually contributed to burnout for me i remember there were days where i wanted the next day to be better so i would stay up late at night after the kids went to bed to catch up on additional cases so that i would (laughs) ensure that the next day was better But in the process, I was burning out, right? There's so many reasons why, you know, how your job in medicine actually contributes to burnout. And then there are two aspects to that. A lot of that is also your ability to set boundaries and to adapt to the situation. The big part of it, like you said, if you're not the kind of person, and many of us are in situations where we aren't thriving in medicine, the ability to make a shift, right? That ability, the shift could just be staying there, really defining your boundaries, negotiating better. But if you want to get into a better situation, a lot of physicians aren't in a position where they're able to make that shift. And that's where I think financial freedom comes in. That's where whatever you're doing, 
doing, right? Everything that you talk about, financial planning, all of that contributes to your ability to make that pivot if you need to. Yeah. We always say using finance or your money as a tool is the key. Like it's not the money in itself. Like money doesn't act like having a million dollars or a billion or whatever that does nothing in itself. Like yes, it's how you use it is the question mark as a tool. I'm curious about some of the big decisions along the way, like maybe before you shifted out, like starting in practice, selecting a practice, selecting a specialty even, like before you were kind of into real estate, maybe how did finances play into into some of these big career decisions or did they? Uh, to some extent they did. Um, I wouldn't say finances per se. I would say more lifestyle because I did decide to go into radiology, which is one of the lifestyle subspecialties in medicine. I did decide um, to pick breast imaging, which again um, is, is a better lifestyle choice because oftentimes mm. you're, you have the ability to say, I don't want to do weekends. I don't want to work overnight. So you do have that ability. I think that was an intentional choice. It's also something that I was really good at and and that helped. But I think looking back, having that time for my family and being able to balance it, like you said, how do you balance it? How are you supposed to balance it if you're one person and you are full-time in multiple things, right? So it's not possible. And so if you don't have that freedom of time, then everything else falls apart. So I think I've been very intentional from the beginning about the choices I made. But even with those choices, I realized that I wasn't really where I needed to be. And, you know, people ask me all the time, how did you pivot from medicine to real estate? I don't think that's what happened. And I think this is the core of what you speak to also. Daniel, when you're making money, you know, as a physician, as any kind of professional, anyone who's making money, you need to be investing it. Because if you aren't investing it, then you're constantly trading your time for money, but you want your money to be making money for you. And for me, real estate was just that vehicle. It was just a vehicle I chose to really make my money work harder for me, essentially. That's essentially it. And, and the rest of it was just a passion project started off as, okay, I want to talk about this because you know this, Danielle, I've listened to your podcast and the topics you pick, right? These are such important topics. A lot of us struggle with this, but there's never a space to talk about it. No one's really at the workplace. You're not talking about you. You interact with friends. Oftentimes people are very tight-lipped about finances, but all of our struggles are so similar. When I got to the point, I realized that, well, I could have done this 10 years ago if I if someone had walked me through this whole process. And so it was just a question of talking to people about, hey, what are you doing with your money? How are you investing it? Because if we're not intentional about it, we're going to land up somewhere where we don't want to be. Do you think financial literacy is a was a big part of it. So I don't think there's ever a focus on financial literacy, right? So right now, listening to your podcast, there are so many people talking about it. I think 2010, when I came out of fellowship, I think it was a different world back there. I I don't think there were so many people talking about all of this. I don't think it was part of our curriculum in school. It's not something Mm -hmm. we talked about as a family, especially if you're a physician. The understanding is that your income in medicine is your financial security, which is completely not true because that job is not in, in your control. And therefore that income is not in your control and you're trading your time for money, right? If you don't put the time in, you're not getting the money. So financial literacy is important, but there really isn't a focus on it in school, in families, in our circles. And so I had mentors who taught me what they knew, which kind of got me started. So 2014, I got my first rental. I got a couple of rentals along the way, but I didn't really know what I was doing with them entirely, right? Uh, I was somewhat financial literate and people taught me what they knew, but there was so much more to learn. And as soon as I learned that, I was able to pivot. So yeah. financial literacy is absolutely imperative, I mean, for anyone, right? But there aren't really conversations about it. And I would say 15 years ago, the resources weren't there. I think it's easier now if you want to go in and read blogs and understand. But that's where having someone assist you with the planning or maybe I think mentoring and coaching in that space is so helpful because just listening to things here and there, it's kind of hard to have a you know a systemized roadmap, right? So if you have someone... Mm-hmm. Can actually look at things holistically and 
help you build that roadmap. I think that's really important. Yeah, I know you're probably experiencing, well, you've experienced it on both ends. You were saying like you had a mentor and I imagine, we haven't talked about this yet, but I imagine you've kind of experienced it on the other end of being the mentor or helping someone kind of learn or make a plan or whatever. I've experienced that working with families. It's like the light bulb goes off or it's like connecting financial literacy to like your ability to enjoy time with family or like, you know, there's a lot of different ways this kind of plays out. But like one thing I have noticed is similarity to a lot of these people like you that have had success here is that there's some component of another person that helped them kind of like get over the hurdle. In other words, it's really difficult or maybe impossible to go at it alone. I think so, Daniel. I mean, I remember one of my colleagues at my first job out of fellowship, he was a third generation real estate investor and he kind of got me started. He connected me to his team. He told me how to invest in the stock market. He told me what to do with real estate. And I think if he hadn't really guided me and I, I would teach him breast tomorrow, which was something he was learning on the go and he hadn't actually trained to do it. And so he taught me how to invest in the stock market and real estate. And I, I don't think I'd be here if I hadn't had the perspective shift that uh, I had because of interacting with him. Right. And so that's what oftentimes, and, and, and you understand this, right? What we're doing is we're just presenting people with multiple different options. So they have different perspectives to pick from. So, and they're more intentional about what matters to them. And it's not a one size fits all, but really being able to see what your options are, is really important. And I think having someone who kind of shifted that perspective for me and got me started, if I hadn't started, if I hadn't seen the impact that that $150,000 property had over six years, I would never have taken the step mm. to really accelerate when I did. Right. And so I think it's really important at having those people at the right time, the earlier, the better, because then you have the company compounding effect of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you originally started out, you had, you were doing the real estate while also practicing medicine full-time, right? So I was. And so the funnily, and I say this uh, all the time, it's like when I didn't have kids and I had all the income and I all the time in the world and I was in academic medicine, I didn't realize the impact of real estate investing, right? So I, I bought this, my first rental property, it was putting 500 bucks in my pocket every month. And I thought, well, how is this ever going to get me to $10,000, $20,000? Well. Right? So I was like, okay, well, this doesn't make sense. I put it on the back burner and I and then I purchased something without leverage. So again, doing things, not really doing them the right way, I would say, looking back. But mm. I, I at least got started. Was your first turnkey like a outsourced, like you had a manager and the whole thing? Yeah, exactly. And so my mentor would invest out of state with a property manager who had never laid eyes on his properties. And so that gave me the perspective that I could do that. And I was living in California. I wasn't sure if we were going to settle down here. So I started investing in Texas, um, right? And I didn't have any barriers around that because I saw him do that successfully. But I would say even then, I didn't realize the impact. But then looking back in 2019, like I said, status quo is fine. You know, as long as everything you're, you're sailing, it's okay. But when I had that crash, that's when I looked around and I was like, okay, so what's my stock portfolio looking like? What does real estate look like? And then I saw that with a third of my money in real estate, I was getting twice as much in passive income. Because at that point I was thinking, what about passive income, right? So what if I don't go to work tomorrow? What happens to my family? And that was like the, the light bulb moment for me. Like, so six times the passive income, why is that? And then that's when I learned about the 4% safe withdrawal rate. And I was like, wow, I need to have two and a half million in my retirement accounts if I want to pull out a hundred thousand dollars. But real estate, it was like, you know, a fraction of that invested in real estate, even doing what I was doing, which was just buying them turnkey, keeping them super passive and having someone manage it. I could get, get to that point so much faster. But then along the way, I learned so many other strategies, you know, uh, for high income professionals, we're paying multiple six figures in taxes. There are ways that depending on what you invest in, right, short term rentals, you may be able to some of our members shelter a half a million dollars of income from taxes just by virtue of investing um, in short term rentals. So, so many different ways to do it. That's when I accelerated. But yes, when I was doing that, I was still working full time. 
Uh, and I had, that was during the pandemic, right? So the kids were home and working full time. Uh, and I was still able to get to financial freedom within a year. My plan was a three-year plan. I got it within a year just because of getting more literate in terms of, okay, what is this and what can I do and how can I accelerate? So I say I did it when I was working full-time and I had two kids during the pandemic. I didn't really do it when I had all the time in the world and, you know, didn't have kids. So a lot of that has to do with the fact that, you know, when your mindset shifts, that's when you're able to do it. When you see those, have those different perspectives, when you have the knowledge in terms of what you can do with it. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, Ren Financial Planning. Want to hear something cool? My team at Ren Financial Planning has consistently told me that the listeners of this podcast are their favorite people to talk to. Did you know that you can set up a no-cost triage meeting with one of our amazing CFPs at Ren Financial Planning anytime and talk about your biggest financial questions? We can discuss things like considerations for transitioning into practice, getting the best bang for your buck buying a house, the smartest way to pay off student debt, or tips on maximizing your compensation package. Or maybe you'd love a second set of eyes to help look over your tax return or investment allocations. Maybe you'd just like a general second opinion from your existing advisor. Either way, our role in this meeting will be to listen to your concerns and help you start to identify potential actionable next steps so that you can start to make solid progress addressing those concerns as quickly as possible. Schedule a meeting now. You'll see a link in the show notes. And when you do, make sure to indicate you found us from Finance for Physicians. We look forward to talking to you. Okay, let's get back to our show. Ronnie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen this, but it feels like there's a lot of interest in the physician circles in real estate. Have you kind of felt that or maybe a growing interest or greater interest? Or has it always been this way that there's been an interest? I think over the last three years, there's definitely been an increase. And I think it has a lot to do with physicians always thinking that they had, yes, we're treated terribly and there's no respect anymore. And and our salaries keep going down and reimbursement is down and administrators are telling us what to do. But we always had a sense of job security (laughs) and COVID proved that wrong. COVID proved that physicians, even during a pandemic, can be let go. Their hours can be cut, their salaries cut. They can be told you have to go in to see this patient that has an incredibly infectious disease and you might die, mm-hmm. but you have to go in because you have to get paid. And so that they started thinking like, oh my God, okay, well, what if I don't want to do this? Yeah. What are my options? I'm tied to this job. What happens if I get really, really sick? What am I going to do for income? And I think that it was just kind of a wake-up call. And it's not limited to just physicians. There's the great resignation now. Like people are leaving corporate jobs and it's not limited to that, but there was a big awakening during and after COVID. Yeah. I feel like you could call it physician burnout or moral injury or whatever, frustrations with your career, or there's this like increased desire to, and people even say it this way, to get gain freedom. Freedom is like a big kind of buzzword. Physicians are looking for like freedom or alternatives. And typically what I see coming up is real top of the list solutions. Real estate's usually on it, but it's like side gigs, real estate, or I'm going to retire early. 
right? or maybe a career shift of some sort, which kind of, there's a lot of overlap on those things, but it seems like all that's interrelated. It sounds like you're on the same page with that. And that's my first thought is like, so freedom, I think is a, a key word. Like, and my thought is like, what are you needing to get freedom from? Yeah, that's a great question. And it depends. It's a personal question, right? Every person mm -hmm. has their own idea of what freedom is. Is it freedom of their time? Is it freedom to travel? Is it freedom to practice medicine? How they choose to practice medicine? Freedom from financial worries. I mean, there's so many ways to look at freedom and it's a personal definition, I guess. I yeah. think though, it seems like a lot of physicians in training kind of like feel like going into practice is freedom. Oh yeah, for I sure. I mean, on the, on the back end, they usually don't say it that way. They're like, no, 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 it's not freedom. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, for sure. Like residency is almost like military. There's yeah. an intern and then it's a second year resident, third year resident, chief resident, fellow, attending. You're constantly being told what to do. And what you chose to do is wrong or not wrong or right. There's no freedom. Your, your schedule is given to you. You're told when you go to work, when you come home, uh, if you come home, because most of the time you're sleeping in the hospital and you're doing call. And so there's, when you're done with that, people are like, yay, I'm free. And yeah. then they hit the, the real world when it's got its own shackles. Yeah, I think a lot of times that's what we're after is like getting free from the sh shackles. I mean, the opposite of freedom I think of is like slavery. Now, I know physicians are not slaves necessarily, but I mean, you can be a slave and be compensated. That doesn't have to be intertwined, but freedom is a, I think, a high priority for a lot of people. And they don't feel that in healthcare today. I feel like healthcare is kind of like squeezing the freedom out of people. It's like taking away your freedom, especially yeah. when you sign like a really, really long non-compete or you overcommit on your finances and you're really locked into working or you're in just an especially high pressure job. Or like I was, <laughs> we were talking about the videos. What was his name? Dr. Glocken. Glocken Flecken. Lock and flicking. I had to bring that up <laughs> because Ronnie recommended it. And if you haven't seen his videos, they're hilarious. But he has all kinds of videos about stereotypes with different physicians. But he also has some about like problems in healthcare and insurance and distress and all that kind of thing. And they're real things and a lot of times driving you to want to get out of medicine. But was that so do you feel like that is what really was the underpinning to why you got into real estate? Were you seeking that freedom? Yeah. So I mean, I was really a victim of the golden handcuffs. I was mm. making a ton of money, but my time was directly related to my income. So if I wasn't working, I wasn't making money. Mm -hmm. I wasn't making money unless I was in the hospital taking care of patients, doing what I need to do. So one day my husband's like, yeah, you're an hourly worker. I mean, I knew I was an hourly worker, but he's like, well, you're a high paid hourly worker, but you're, you're just an hourly worker. Mm -hmm. And because I would come home from these shifts, exhausted physically, mentally, and say to myself, well, what else am I supposed to be doing? Like, I don't know how to make this type of money anywhere else. Like, we're not taught anything else. Like, I, I went into a profession that I was taught a trade. I was taught how to do it. I spent years and years. And then I was deep into my career. And I was making a lot of money, which I thought would make me happy. And it didn't. And so I tried to cut some shifts right? Or take more vacations or, but every time you take a vacation as an emergency room doctor, you're required to do a certain amount of shifts per month. So if I was taking a vacation, that means I would be front loaded before and then back loaded mm. after my vacation. So I would get killed before the vacation, take the vacation 
takes me like four days to recover. And then you're in the vacation, you blink, the vacation's over, and then you're working like crazy just to make up for the time that you weren't working. That's the word. That was what I did for 16 years. Mm. It was like, well, there isn't any other option. And that's why we started looking around like, well, how do other people not do this? How do other people make money? Because making money can't be that hard. And really with this journey that I've been through, I realized that my mindset has switched from scarcity to abundance. And mm. it, it's actually easy to make money if you know where to look and what to do and how to do it. So really the first switch is mindset and the second mm. switch is education. Yeah. So more money did not make you happy. I think that's important to reemphasize. Yeah. When you started, I don't know, earlier in your career, did you think more money was going to make you happy? I just thought if I was going to make a ton of money, I could work less for the same amount of money. So I kept saying like, okay, now I'm working 17, 18 shifts a month. Mm -hmm. So when I make partner in my group and I'll make more money, I'll be able to go down to 12. For sure, I'll be able to last many, many years to do that. Well, I went down to 12 and I was still just as miserable. So then I went down to 10. I was like, I'll just make less money. But then I couldn't go down any lower. We had to pay our bills. But it, to me, it was it was just the stress of everything that and I just felt, I mean, I was in the, you know, in the emergency world, you're told you're, it, it's like a thankless job, really. Your patients are angry. You're, you're really helping them on their worst day. So you're not getting the best side of them. It's a high stress. The consultants are angry with you. There's a high, it's like a fishbowl mentality. Everybody's coming in and telling you, why'd you do this? Why'd you do that? You're fighting with everybody to get patients admitted or discharged or go to surgery. You're constantly just trying to take care of the patient and every interaction is possible. It, when it, Hey, when it goes smooth, it's amazing. You're like, oh my God, I love my job. But mm -hmm. the reality of emergency medicine is you're constantly trying to convince someone of what you're seeing. So if I had a patient that had severe abdominal pain and the CT scan didn't show what I thought it would show, but this patient looks terrible and something's wrong with them and they need to go for exploratory laparotomy, I would have to convince a surgeon to do that. They weren't in-house. So I would have to give the clinical picture. I would have to say like, something's going on. Like, I can't just send this patient home. Something's wrong. I don't know what it is but something's wrong. And that's just one example. Mm -hmm. We could see 50 patients a day. Yeah. Was so, there like a breaking point for you? Like, did you have um, a moment in time where like, oh my, I, or did it kind of like get slowly worse where you're like, I need to. I had, I had some major like breaking points, but I kept pushing through. I had a shift really early in my career, two years into being an attending where I had two pediatric deaths in one day, in one shift. It was mm -hmm. like, I, I, it was awful. Plus you see the other 40 patients. So after that shift, I said, oh my God, how do people do this for 30 years? Like, what if I have tomorrow another shift like this? Right. So, but then I continued, I said, oh, well, let me try it. Maybe it's the environment. Maybe it's the clinical setting. Maybe I need to be less urban and more suburban. So I switched around in different clinical scenarios. Uh, I went to a freestanding emergency room kind of work where you do, it's kind of very low volume, mm -hmm. less stress, but it's very long shifts. It could be a 24 hour shift that you're working, but I also worked 
shorter shifts that were very, very high intensity where I could be taking care of three or four dying patients at the same time. So you realize where you're like, at some point it starts weighing, it's like, it starts just weighing on you and weighing on you and weighing on you. And really my final end was in COVID. I saw no ends. It was nine months into COVID. There was no end in sight. It was just, I was like, this isn't going to end anytime soon. I, I can't do this anymore. Like I'm in a respirator. People are just dying everywhere. There's just bad patient care, bad health care. I was at risk. My family was at risk. And I said, that's it. And that's when I stepped away from medicine. Yeah, that's hard. Both the different, those are two kind of different flavors of challenges. Like all of it's hard, but dealing with a death, I don't care who it is. Like the pediatric death to me sounds just super challenging or stressful, or that's not the right word, terrible to go through. But first thing I think of is like therapy and like resources. And like the worst thing to do is to like bury it. I, I would think I, I'm not an expert at that kind of thing, but I'm curious if there were like resources in the system you're in that were like, oh, it's been a terrible day. Like here's some like somebody to go talk to. You should probably have like a unwinding session. Yeah, we did not have it at that facility. When I moved, that was in New York. When I moved to Texas, that was the first time that I had heard of those type of sessions where you just kind of talk about what happened because, mm -hmm. I mean, we had obviously more, more pediatric deaths. And so those do happen, but you know, it's just assumed that the physician we're supposed to just like bottle it back up and go see the ankle sprain that's still waiting to be seen. You know, after you deal with that, you have to, and then you still have to walk into that room and say, hi, how are you? What brings you in today? After what you just did, right? You just tried to resuscitate a child and you had to tell the family and you had to talk to the police and you had mm -hmm. to, I mean, there's just like so many levels. And then there's people that are still waiting to be seen and they don't know what's going on. I'm just, you know, what I don't need to tell them, but whatever it is, there's just so many levels in the emergency room. You know, every patient that gets discharged from the emergency room gets a press gainy survey. Do you know, have you what ever heard that? of that? No. They get a, so how was your treatment? Did your oh, doctor yeah. pay attention to you? How patient was your doctor? Did they smile? Did they greet you? Did they sit down? Did they shake your hand? So those, the ankle sprain is the one that gets those surveys and our salaries are tied to those surveys, not yeah. the people that we spend hours with trying to save their lives. So like the whole system is just very broken. I could go on and on for hours yeah. about how broken it is. So I don't want to depress you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, if, if I have had many, many conversations about the problems within healthcare, and if you've listened for a while, if you're listening, you've heard many conversations about a lot of the problems. It is good to talk about them and understand them and start to work towards solutions. But I'm shifting towards more the bright side. Like, let's pretend like things had been better. Like, I imagine you had some kind of like roses and sunshine view of how things were going to shake out in medicine or like hypothetically, if you were to have gone into practice and things had not been so stressful and it would have been like you could have provided the care that you had always thought was the right way to do things and all these stressors hadn't occurred. Do you think things would have played out the same? Would you have stayed in yes. practice? I would have stayed in. I would have stayed in and I would have stayed in my little bubble of this is how you do it. You save money, you pay off your house, you put money in a 401k and you should be fine. 
Mm -hmm. Right. I have till I'm 65 to make sure I'm fine. The job's not going anywhere. I like it. Yeah. You know, I have, I'm highly skilled. If you enjoy I'm, it I, too. Right. I enjoyed it. Initially, I went into emergency medicine because you have the flexibility. No one's calling you. You're never on call. You don't have a pager. So, you know, when you're off, you're off. So I was planning on traveling and taking up hobbies and, and doing all kinds of things on the days off. That's interesting. As a patient, I am a little uneasy about that statement because I'm like, I've heard, and I've heard a lot of people say that. And then usually it's like the smarter people that I know or the like successful people that kind of have a lot of good things going. And it's frustrating that those you and those others are leaving healthcare and therefore are not able to be my physician selfishly or my kiddos physician. Yeah, but me. I also, I also yeah. get it like that. So I assume there's probably a little bit of like guilt feeling in the back either, or maybe there was at some point where you're like, and then I could imagine that would make it even a little harder to, I'm sure people feel that not to say that that's a reason not to. I'm guessing that was a factor as well. I'll tell you, first of all, I am very scared of when I am older, who will take care of me? Who's going to be in the emergency room? Who's going to be in the hospitals? It's not going to be physicians. There's going to be nurse practitioners. There's going to be PAs, the physicians. I don't know who's the supervising doctor going to be. I, there's going to be a mass. There's already a shortage of doctors, but it is going to be really, really bad unless we find some AI that takes over, but it, it's going to be awful. Mm -hmm. Do I have guilt about leaving? No, I took care of so many people and I've saved so many lives and I was amazing. Mm -hmm. And I put my heart and soul into it. I don't feel guilty about completing my, that chapter in my life. And now I help people in another way. Before I helped them in their life emergencies with their wellness, with their health. Now I'm doing it with their wealth. I'm helping them with their finances. I'm giving them options that they've never learned about. And they're just as scared. <laughs> they're just as scared with finances as they are in the emergency room. And yeah. People are fear what they don't know. People fear that they, what they don't have control over. So I feel like I'm still helping people and I'm still making an impact. And I'm never going to stop that. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, that's, that's good that you were able to get to that point. I think a lot of people stay in a painful situation because of the guilt and that's like unhealthy in itself. And then they forget about that whole, like they've served patients for years and years and years. And it's a huge deal that in itself. And at some point, the other thing too, so the brighter view, or at least my brighter view of that problem, I just pointed out, like, I think the more people that leave like you have, or that like call somebody out or like, do something about it, the more somebody's going to wake up or more likely somebody's going to wake up or do something different. So this is a good thing. Like you can't just like go with the status quo and like give into the guilt because that doesn't do anything about the problem. It really actually compounds it. And so hopefully things start to change. I think they are starting to change and it's a slow progression, but, but yeah, in real estate too, you can help people in that regard. You can help people in a million different ways. And I think most physicians got into practice to help people for the right reasons. But you don't, like you're saying, you can help people with their finances and gaining freedom from whatever it might be to them. Was that like a huge transition? I feel like some people are intimidated by that, or I see that in people, the idea of going from medicine to financial. Well, if, if you just say, I, I, I never said I, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to be a finance expert. I'm going to learn private equity. <laughs> yeah. I, if you would have asked me that five years ago, I would have been like, what does private equity mean? It's been a journey. And the only thing that would have forced me to get there is I had to be forced. I had to have hated my life, hated my current situation enough for me to look for alternatives. 
And believe me, I looked for so many. I was looking to start a yogurt franchise or Chick-fil-A or start a car wash. My husband and I, we started two CrossFit gyms. Mm. Um, I was part of two freestanding emergency rooms. So I did start doing a lot of this. I was very business oriented without knowing I was business oriented, even in 2015, where I opened two freestanding emergency rooms with several other physicians and we were running our own business. But again, it was healthcare related and a lot of the same problems that I was seeing in healthcare made me just say, you know what, I want to learn more about this other world. Yeah. Um, and so it wasn't really a, I went from here to here. So it scared me. You were getting into entrepreneurship within healthcare yeah. already. So therefore, yeah. I mean, there's a ton of carryover. I mean, like entrepreneurship in healthcare is very similar to entrepreneurship in anything. I mean, entrepreneurship is entrepreneurship and you have to know finances or have some level of financial literacy, in my opinion, to be in business, or at least it forces you to focus on that a little mm -hmm. bit more than, I mean, in healthcare, you can kind of not pay attention to the economics and the financial aspects. And so you were already in that. So why didn't you have a million CrossFit gyms? So what about like the freestanding ERs and the, I guess you already mentioned that, like the issue with those is it was kind of pulling you back into the healthcare related issues, but I'm curious about the other. Yeah, I, I still own them. I still own my freestanding ERs, but you know, they're, they have their own issues where governments not, there's all kinds of healthcare reform regarding reimbursement and insurance declining freestanding emergency rooms and not paying bills. And so there's their own like healthcare related issues. Mm -hmm. regarding that business. So to me right now, I'm staying away from like healthcare related businesses. It's just so highly, highly, highly just scrutinized, regulated. And I don't invest in hospitals. I don't invest in even healthcare related real estate. I just, that's interesting. I'm just avoiding that whole sector. Yep. In terms of the CrossFit gyms, COVID killed the gym business. People, yeah. we had to shut down. So those businesses really dwindled because we had to turn away our clients and then we had to rebuild everything back. I mean, it was not fun. <laughs> yeah. So even though we thought like, hey, we, you know, we got some diversification in entrepreneurial businesses. It really wasn't enough diversification, but it really, it was enough for me to say, we have enough money coming in for me to leave medicine. We had diversified into real estate, that that sector had still continued to provide, mm -hmm. that I was able to say, okay, I'm leaving medicine and then we'll figure the rest out. You've been listening to Finance for Physicians. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to our show in your favorite podcast player. On this show, we believe that when you prioritize your finances, you take better care of yourself, have more fulfilling relationships with your families, and most importantly, provide higher quality care for your patients. If you feel this way too and want to learn more, then make sure to join our community. Follow the Finance for Physicians Facebook group for bonus content and sneak peeks on next week's episode. Thanks for listening.